Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to Whistle Stop, a podcast of campaign curiosities. I'm John Dickerson, host of Face the Nation, a Sunday public affairs program on the Columbia Broadcasting System. Does a presidential candidate need to feel the voters' pain? Where did this fixation come from with the empathetic quality of campaigning? Is it Carter? Is it Bill Clinton? We know Andrew Jackson didn't give a damn what you felt, and he'd be more likely to cause your pain than to feel it. The power of a candidate's ability to feel the voters' pain was actually encapsulated in a single dramatic moment, an exchange on the debate stage at the University of Richmond in 1992, where Bill Clinton, Ross Perot, and George Bush all got a whack at showing their bedside manner. It was in this moment that the general notion of showing empathy with the plight of voters was given its full dramatic thrust, and it's now grown after that moment into this mythical character with outsized powers. It can even give a candidate a plus five damage against orcs. We'll examine how this self-help instinct took on such power, but first, a word from our sponsor. We're sponsored by The Great Courses, which is really excellent because while I'm a huge fan of their lectures on history, music, and literature, I'm also quite keen to improve myself. They're offering some courses that might help me do just that. Scientific Secrets for a Powerful Memory, How Conversation Works, Art of Public Speaking, Influence, Mastering Life's Most Powerful Skill, and here's a special limited offer for Whistle Stop listeners. Order any one of the four of these business and presentation courses for just $9.95. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash whistlestop. That's thegreatcourses.com slash whistlestop. Our Whistle Stop today is October 13th, 1992, at the Williamsburg Lodge in Williamsburg, Virginia. William Jefferson Clinton is there just because his name sounds like the name of the town. William Jefferson Clinton is practicing getting on and off a high blue stool. A room in the lodge has been arranged to look just like a campaign town hall with voters. There are three stools next to each other representing the seats where the three presidential candidates will rest or not rest, as the crucial case may be. Their derrieres, two nights from this night, in the second general election debate of the 1992 campaign. The candidate, William Jefferson Clinton, is protecting his voice. His wife has been feeding him honey draped over lemon wedges as a home remedy to deal with his voice. When he arrived at the lodge, a thousand school children met him, and he could only respond to them in little whispers. But if he's whispering to protect his voice, he is animated in the way in which he's moving around the room. He's fully engaged in the choreography necessary for the debate. The campaign has taped out where the cameras will be. And the Democratic challenger is practicing how to get on and off the high chair and move towards the audience members. He knows how he acts and performs physically and in connection with those voters will be as important, if not more important, than what he says. Empathy. It's a quality we all like in other human beings. Many religions are based on this idea. But how important is it for a politician? Scholars vary on this, but there is a rough consensus that voters pick the candidate who cares about their needs because when they vote, they're essentially handing over their proxy in the hopes 
that when the president is alone and stops talking to the paintings, he'll decide what to do, and when he does, he'll have their needs in mind. So what better way to test for this than to ask people which candidate conveys that sense of understanding? If they can feel it in a televised debate or in an interview that that candidate cares about them, then that may be the key to getting their vote. The parties see this need differently. In polling today in the 2016 race and in early October, 26% of Democrats say it is the most important quality for a candidate to have. That's tied at the top. The other quality they think candidates should have is honesty. For Republicans, only 13% care about this empathetic quality. The qualities of honesty and leadership are higher. So this gives you some sense of the complexity of this. But in a general election, it is often believed that the inroads to voters, both on your own team and getting them out, but also in getting those undecided voters, is giving them a sense that you understand where they're coming from. The way I hear this out on the campaign trail is when people, voters that I talk to, come to me and they say, how can Hillary understand, Hillary Clinton understand my needs when she hasn't driven a car for 20 years? The idea being if she doesn't live a normal life, if she doesn't know what it's like to juggle the bus schedule and the subway schedule to get from one job to the other job, she can't possibly understand what they're going through and therefore won't back the kinds of economic policies that will really truly help them. Take it another step further, all these candidates who spend time with rich people, 158 families, according to the New York Times, have donated half the money in this election. They spend all this time with rich, fancy people. How can they possibly know what regular folks need when they spend their time sucking up money from people with fancy houses. Of course, the other side of this where uh, this empathetic quality comes across is with the Donald Trump campaign, where he's obviously got vast wealth. He's got his own plane. And the Boeing company gives you a big, like, four-foot-long model of the plane when you get your own plane. And yet, voters have pretty regularly thought that he does understand their their needs and therefore uh, could be a fine president in having that empathetic quality. But it's generally an axiom of politics that you never want to get caught looking out of touch with the voters. There is perhaps no moment in politics where this was brought home more than in this second debate in the 1992 general election. So let's set the stage. Second debate in the 1992 presidential election was the first town hall style debate in American history. My name is Carol Simpson, and I will be the moderator for tonight's 90-minute debate, which is coming to you from the campus of the University of Richmond in Richmond, Virginia. Now, tonight's program is unlike any other presidential debate in history. We're making history now, and it's pretty exciting. An independent polling firm has selected an audience of 209 uncommitted voters from this area. The candidates will be asked questions by these voters on a topic of their choosing, anything they want to ask about. It was an experiment not entirely approved of by the press, which thought its job was to pick the questions and ask them. The larger context was that candidates were learning to go around the mainstream press with talk shows like Larry King and Donahue, and it was making the mainstream press irritated. And some flavor of that comes through in Tom Brokaw's introduction to the debate for NBC. Good evening from the University of Richmond, where tonight the candidates and the voters mix it up in a freewheeling format that's never been tried before. This evening will be part debate, part game show, part talk show, and all important with the election just two weeks from next Tuesday. Can you hear the edge in there? At this stage in the presidential debate, Bill Clinton was well ahead of George Bush. But right before the debate started in early October, Ross Perot had jumped back in. Remember from our Perot and Donald Trump episode, Perot departs from the race right before the Democratic convention when Bill Clinton is doing very well in the polls. 
Perot says, well, the Democrats have got it handled. I'm going to drop out. Well, he's now back in. So on the eve of the second debate, Clinton has lost a little of his altitude. He's at 48 percent. Bush is at 35. Perot is only at eight. Before all the debates began, George Bush had been reluctant to debate or, or he had been trying to work on a way to get the debates to happen on his terms. The Democrats thought this was a big stalling technique. And so they started sending around people in chicken costumes to Bush rallies saying he was too chicken to debate. Here's the way James Baker, who was a top advisor to George Bush, put it. You can't just refuse to debate at all. You have to appear that you want to have a free-flowing exchange of ideas, whether you do or not. You've got to look like you do. And you take on a lot of water when you don't, when you're not willing to debate. We made an effort to control the debate about debates in 1992. But then this commission got in there and the Democrats were able to say, we'll do whatever the commission says. This is important. This is the Commission on Presidential Debates, the outside body that sort of named itself the uh, arbiter of all presidential debates. Well, neither campaign has control over those. So when the Commission on Presidential Debates set the terms for the debate, it seemed like it was some sort of word of God. And so that is what put the Bush folks in a box. Back to Baker. They had this guy very effectively dressed up in a chicken suit going to our rallies. Chicken George, he won't debate. Well, you don't mess around with that for very long, I'll tell you. So there wasn't any issue about not debating. We just wanted to maintain control over the format. So the point of this is that this whole Chicken George thing suggested that Bush was really reluctant to participate in the debates. And so going into this second debate, the one with regular people, he's the president of the United States. He doesn't have to answer in this messy sort of new talk showy kind of thing. So already going in, there was this feeling that Bush wasn't really into the game that, that was being played. But in the end, he agreed. And in part, he agreed to the town hall meetings because he'd done that kind of thing when he was a congressman. But if George Bush had done it when he was a congressman, he was nothing compared to Bill Clinton in terms of his talent for participating in town hall debates. Clinton was really good. Why? Because during the Jennifer Flowers, New Hampshire death spiral his campaign was in, they used the town hall debates to go around the mainstream media and speak directly to the voters. And this did two things. One, it meant the questions were not likely to be about Jennifer Flowers and affairs and that kind of thing, because regular people weren't about to ask those questions in the same way. And then when they didn't, Clinton could say, this is what the people really care about, not your stupid tabloid trash. But it also gave Clinton another talent, not just how to interact with the voters, but how to stage manage a moment so that his interaction with a single voter could broadcast a larger view of empathy towards other voters. So it's not just that he perfected the format as a responder, but also as a talk show host, which there's a great piece in the 1993 uh, from 1993 in Mother Jones. Richard Levine writes an essay about how uh, and he talks about how Clinton, there was a debate held on the Donahue show between Clinton and California Governor Jerry Brown. And Clinton takes over the conversation. It's just between the two men. But if you turned it on and you were from another country, you would think Clinton was the host of the Donahue show, not Donahue. Going into that second debate, George Bush wanted the campaign conversation in the debate to be about character because character couldn't be easily measured. Unemployment could be measured. The stock market could be measured. And those would hurt the incumbent Bush in a weak economy. Bill Clinton also had lots and lots of plans and specifics and his perspective, detailed ideas about the future legislation and the stuff they would enact would always sound more appealing than 
Bush's details about his programs, either that had or hadn't been enacted while he was president. So there was no incentive for Bush to fight a war in that second debate in the general election on details. The facts about the current state of things just weren't good enough for him. So he wanted to go in another direction. He wanted to talk about the intangibles of the presidency. I say this because it's ironic then at the end that this debate would end up hanging Bush on the question of the intangible quality of empathy and feeling pain. The Bush supporters at the time said, well, this was some neat trick that Clinton had pulled off and and some kind of fuzzy thing that didn't really have anything to do with the presidency. That wasn't quite it. Bush was perfectly happy to have the election determined on the qualities that could not be put into a white paper. He just wanted those qualities to be the fuzzy ones that he wanted, which is to say character, not the question of empathy, which is what Bill Clinton wanted. But this was not going to be a night about character. Bush had his attacks completely ready and honed and ready to go, but they were taken from him almost the moment this whole debate started by the audience and then with the assistance of the moderator. When the debate started, the entire format was put in the context of talking about the issues and not character. It had been a pretty muddy campaign. There had been a lot of charges, of course, about Clinton's womanizing, but also his draft dodging and his protesting the United States while overseas at Oxford. In the vice presidential debate that had just been a few days before this second presidential debate, Dan Quayle, running on the ticket with George Bush, had brought up character repeatedly. But then when the debate began, one of the first questioners asked the candidates not to talk about character at all. She directed the question to all the candidates, but it was clearly aimed at Bush, who had been making the character attacks. Yes, I'd like to address all the candidates with this question. The amount of time the candidates have spent in this campaign trashing their opponent's character and and their programs is depressingly large. Why can't your discussions and proposals reflect the genuine complexity and the difficulty of the issues to try to build a consensus around the best aspects of all proposals? When you watch the video, Bush slaps his hand against his thigh as this question is being asked. Then a little bit later, he walks away almost in disgust as the question rounds out. And it shows basically that it's an attack on his primary attack for the night. But then Bush doesn't back down. He can't give it up character is his major attack. Well, first place, I believe that character is a part of being president. I think you have to look at it. I think that has to be a part of of a candidate for president or being president. In terms of programs, I've submitted, what, four different budgets to the United States Congress in great detail. They're so heavy they'd give you a, you know, back and broken back. And everything in there says what I am for. Now I've come out with a new agenda for America's renewal, a plan that I believe really will help stimulate the growth of this economy. My record on world affairs is pretty well known because I've been president for four years, so I feel I've been talking issues. You know, nobody likes likes who who shot John, but I think the first negative campaign run in this this election was by Governor Clinton. And I'm not going to sit there and be a punching bag. I'm going to stand up and say, hey, Listen, here's my side of it. But character is an important part of the equation. The other night, uh, Governor Clinton raised my, I don't know if you saw the debate the other night, suffered through that. Uh, Well, he raised the question of my father. It was a good line, well rehearsed and well delivered. But he raised the question of my father and said, well, your father, Prescott Bush, was against McCarthy. You should be ashamed of yourself, McCarthyism. 
I'm, I remember something my dad told me. I was 18 year old, going to Penn Station to go on into the Navy. And he said, write your mother, which I faithfully did. He said, uh, serve your country. My father was an honor, duty, and country man. And he said, uh, tell the truth. And I've tried to do that in public life, all through it. And that has says something about character. My argument with Governor Clinton, uh, you can call it mud wrestling, but I think, it's, I think it's fair to put it in focus is, I am deeply troubled by someone who demonstrates and organizes demonstration in a foreign land when his country's at war. Probably a lot of here, kids here disagree with me, but that's what I feel. That's what I feel passionately about. I'm thinking of, of Ross Perot's running mate sitting in the jail. How would he feel about it? But maybe that's generational, I don't know. But the big argument I have with the governor on this is this taking different positions on different issues. Trying to be one thing to one person here that's opposing the NAFTA agreement and then for it, what we call waffling. And I do think that you can't turn the White House into the Waffle House. You gotta say what you're for. That was a pretty good answer from Bush, right? The Waffle House joke, if you go back and listen to that answer, you can hear him playing the set pieces, those practice lines that he'd been working on that he wanted to get out in the course of the debate because he sort of, you know, bolts them together. Bush was making the case for why this was not just mindless mudslinging, but an important attribute of the presidency, which, of course, it is. Clinton, in his answer to Bush's insistence on why character was so important, said he wanted to talk about the character of the presidency as if that weren't also what Bush was talking about. But then the moderator, Carol Simpson of ABC, weighed in, putting a little thumb on the scale on Clinton's side. And we'll hear her in a moment. She also introduces us to someone who will become known as Ponytail Man, a fellow, Denton Walthall, who would forever become known by that name because of his ponytail. Let's listen first to Simpson and then to Walthall. I talked to this audience before you gentlemen came, and I asked them about how they felt about the tenor of the campaign. Would you like to let them know what you thought about that when I said, are you pleased with how the campaign's been going? Who wants to say why you don't like the way the campaign is going? We have a gentleman back here. If I may. Um, And forgive the notes here, but... I'm sorry, on camera. Um, the focus of my work as a domestic mediator is meeting the needs of the children that I work with by way of their parents and not the wants of their parents. And I ask the three of you, how can we, as symbolically the children of the future president, expect the two of you, the three of you, to meet our needs, the needs in housing and in, and in, and in crime and you name it, as opposed to the wants of your political spin doctors and, yeah. and your political parties? So your question is? Can we focus on the issues and not the personalities and the mud? I think there is a, a, there is a need, if we could take a poll here with the, the folks from Gallup, perhaps. I think there is a real need here to focus at this point on the needs. How do you respond? How do you gentlemen respond to... I agree with him. <laughs> Let's President do it. Bush? Let's do it. Let's talk about programs for children. Could I ask one other thing? Yeah. Could we cross our hearts? It sounds silly here, but could we make a commitment... You know, we're not under oath at this point, but could you make a commitment to the, to the citizens of the United States to meet our needs? And we have many, and, and not yours. Again, I, you know, I repeat that, that it's a real need, I think, that we all have. 
At this point, George Bush's entire game plan has been debunked and dunked on for about six minutes. Carol Simpson later said it was as if someone had stuck a pin in him and he was off his game for the rest of the night. He just lost all energy and enthusiasm because of Denton's question. The 41st president's run-in with Ponytail Guy left such a mark that it haunted his son, George W. Bush, throughout his campaigns. I remember watching a town hall during the 2000 campaign in which George W. Bush consistently refused to call on a man who was waving his arms in the middle of the crowd like he was trying to flag a rescue plane. Bush pretended not to see him, but, I mean, you couldn't not see him. He was was doing everything uh, short of rushing the stage, and later Bush said that he'd seen him but avoided calling on him for fear of creating another moment like the one in the second debate in 1992. In 1996, when Bob Dole was given the chance to attack Clinton's character, then Clinton was the incumbent president uh, battling against Republican nominee Bob Dole, when Dole was given the chance to attack Clinton's character in a a town hall-style debate, he demurred, saying the debate should be about the issues, which is kind of funny if you'll remember from some of our previous episodes that Dole was considered the hatchet man both in the 1980 campaign for the Republican nomination but also in 1976 as Ford's running mate. So there's really a one-two punch in this debate. The first portion of the debate, the first punch, did two things. It took from George Bush his key offensive play. I mean, it sidelined his entire set of wide receivers. It broke the quarterback's arm. His offense making this an issue about character was done. But it also, this first element of the debate, ratified Clinton's vision of the presidency, which is to say it was all about empathy and connection. So... Ponytail Man's question sets up this idea that they should be thinking of the presidency as an empathetic office. The question was not simply to show that you could emote, but to understand what the country needed, what the children out in the country needed. So given that that's what the presidency is about inside the context of this campaign, that sets up the big moment. At about 45 minutes into the debate, an African-American woman wearing a red jacket stands up to ask a question of all three candidates. We have a question right here. Yes. How has the national debt personally affected each of your lives? And if it hasn't, how can you honestly find a cure for the economic problems of the common people if you have no experience in what's ailing them? Ross Perot was the first to answer. In all the responses from the three candidates, they all play so perfectly to type. Perot, the egocentric, self-made man, took the question literally. How had the deficit and debt affected him personally? He had no hard luck story to tell about his life because he had been boasting the rest of the debate about how great his life was. And in fact, in this answer does that. So he told the truth exactly how the debt had affected him. It caused me to disrupt my private life and my business to get involved in this activity. That's how much I care about it. And believe me, if you knew my family and if you knew the private life I have, you would agree in a minute that that's a whole lot more fun than getting involved in politics. But I I have lived the American dream. I came from a very modest background. Nobody's been luckier than I've been. All the way across the spectrum, And the greatest riches of all are my wife and children. It's true of any family. But I want all the children, I want these young people up here to be able to start with nothing but an idea like I did and build a business. But they've got to have a strong, basic economy. And if you're in debt, it's like having a ball and chain around you. I just figure as lucky as I've been, I owe it to them. And I owe it to the future generations. And on a very personal basis, I owe it to my children and grandchildren. The question was a test not just of empathy, 
and showing empathy, but also could you understand what a questioner meant, which of course is part and parcel to empathy. You need to understand what walking in the other fellow's shoes is like in order to communicate with the other fellow. But there's a sense of lost in translation in this question because the question was actually misphrased. The questioner, Marissa Hall Summers, actually meant the recession or the economy, not the debt and how it affected the candidates. So what a candidate on the receiving end of this had to do was figure out what she meant and then give her the empathetic answer to what she meant to ask, not what she did in fact ask. It was a perfect test for the campaign that was supposed to be, in its larger sense, about whether the leaders were in touch with the pain in the country. Literally, could they hear what voters were worried about? And George Bush's answer fit perfectly into the existing storyline, which was that he couldn't hear, that he was so out of touch that he couldn't even understand what America was asking for. And if he couldn't understand what it was asking for, of course, he couldn't come up with policies or push hard enough on the right kind of policies to give the country what it needed. And like the apocryphal story of how he didn't understand the supermarket scanner, here was a situation in which even though the question was messed up, he was responsible for figuring it out and answering it the right way. Well, he didn't quite do that. He had a hard time. Well, I think the national debt affects everybody. Uh, obviously, it has, has a lot to do with interest rates. It has. She's you, saying you personally. You on a personal basis, how has it affected you? Has it affected you personally? Well, I'm sure it has. I love my grand grandchildren. I want to think How? that th I want to think think that they're going to be able to afford an education. I think that that's an important part of being a parent. I, if the question, if you're maybe I won't get it wrong, are you suggesting that if somebody has means, that the national debt doesn't affect them? Oh, well, I'm, 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 I'm not sure I get it. Help me with the question, and I'll well, try to answer. Bush is literally answering the question she asked about the debt, which affects interest rates and about the future of his grandchildren. Boy, Clinton here, we should say, is lucky to be going third in this so he could figure out what the actual question was being asked. Uh, he could see all of this play out before him, which gave him an easier time of it. But at this point, Marissa Hall Summers tries to explain what she actually means. I've had friends that have been laid off from jobs. Yeah. I know people who cannot afford to pay the mortgage on their homes, their car payments. I have personal yeah. uh, problems with the national debt, but how has it affected you? And if you have no experience in it, how can you help us if you don't know what we're feeling? I think she means more the recession, um, the economic problems today the country faces well, rather listen, than the you ought, to, you ought to be in the White House for a day and hear what I hear and see what I see and read the mail I read and touch the people that I touch from time to time. I was in the Lomax AME church. It's a black church just outside of Washington, D.C. And I read in the, uh, in the bulletin about teenage pregnancies, about the difficulty that families are having to meet ends, make ends meet. I talked to parents. I mean, you got to care. Everybody cares if people aren't doing well. But I don't think, it, I don't think it's fair to say you haven't had cancer, therefore you don't know what it's like. I don't think it's fair to say, uh, you know, whatever it is, if you haven't been hit by it personally, but everybody's affected by the debt because of the tremendous interest that goes into paying on that debt. Everything's more expensive. Everything comes out of your pocket and my pocket. So it's, it's that. But I think in terms of the recession, of course you feel it when you're president of the United States. And that's why I'm trying to do something about it by stimulating the export, investing more, better education systems. Bush, in the end, gives a three-part answer. Part one is exactly what Bill Clinton ultimately does and what's seen as, as well-played. Bush talks about the pain he sees as president, but then he does two other things. He acts defensively 
probably a mistake. And then he also tries to slip in some details about his policy position sort of there at the tail end in super Bush fashion, uh, which makes it all just sound like a jumble. And then it was Bill Clinton's turn. He moves off his stool and walks towards Miss Summers. I am incapable, really, of evaluating this moment because it has become so much a part of the lore of this campaign and Bill Clinton's lore. So I'm going to shut up and let you have your experience. But notice in the audio uh, how Clinton is on the question before Bush is even done talking. Thank you. Glad to clarify. Tell me how it's affected you again. Um, You know people who lost their jobs, lost their homes. Uh Well, I've been governor of a small state for 12 years. I'll tell you how it's affected me. Every year, Congress and the president sign laws that makes us, make us do more things. It gives us less money to do it with. I see people in my state, middle class people, their taxes have gone up in Washington and their services have gone down while the wealthy have gotten tax cuts. I, I have seen what's happened in this last four years when in my state, when people lose their jobs, there's a good chance I'll know them by their names. When a factory closes, I know the people who ran it. When the businesses go bankrupt, I know them. And I've been out here for 13 months, meeting in meetings just like this, ever since October, with people like you all over America, people that have lost their jobs, lost their livelihood, lost their health insurance. Mm-hmm. What I want you to understand is the national debt is not the only cause of that. It is because America has not invested in its people. It is because we have not grown. It is because we've had 12 years of trickle-down economics. We've gone from first to 12th in the world in wages. We've had four years where we produced no private sector jobs. Most people are working harder for less money than they were making 10 years ago. It is because we are in the grip of a failed economic theory. And this decision you're about to make better be about what kind of economic theory you want. Not just people saying, I'm gonna go fix it, but what are we going to do? What I think we have to do is invest in American jobs, American education, control American healthcare costs, and bring the American people together again. Have you rendered a view on what you think about these three answers? Because to me, after having been conditioned over the years to think about this and now watching this so many times in preparation for this whistle stop, it just feels like Bill Clinton has poured himself over this woman's head like warm syrup or he's some kind of soothing body mud mask. Here's how David Demarest, a Bush staffer, talks about it. Clinton walks right up to her and he talks about all the people that he knows personally in Arkansas who lost their jobs and their factories, and he's talking to her like she's the only person in the universe. It was just such a contrast. It was great. He was incredibly compelling. Clinton also had gone to that site before, and he'd talked to his media people. He knew where the camera shots were, and he knew when they'd be doing over-the-shoulder shots. He was into that sort of stuff. Bush hated that. He no more would have done that than to fly to the moon. Clinton had practiced like mad. He'd done practice sessions with stand-ins, somebody playing Perot, somebody playing George Bush, and he'd watched the videotapes of his answer. To give you a sense of just how in sync he was with the moment or the way in which luck favors the well-prepared, there is the story of the debate chairs as told by Frank Greer, Clinton's media advisor. In Williamsburg for the town hall debate, we not only mapped out the set for the debates, but we had chairs that were just the right height for Clinton that we practiced on. Then we heard that they were trying to find chairs for the debate. I called up and said, you know, we've got some chairs. If you'd like to use them, you can use them. So Clinton had the benefit of having a chair exactly the right height for him, and Bush did not. We heard that they needed the chairs, and we sent them over. It was the chair that Clinton had been practicing on in Williamsburg. If you watch the debate, and I encourage you to, uh, on YouTube, you'll see a lot of this 
up and down on the chairs and no one's comfortable and Ross Perot stands and standing Ross Perot is the same height as sitting Clinton and Bush. And then you look over at Clinton and he's leaning on his chair like he's at the end of some bar listening to the most fascinating tale in the world. A little aside here as I'm watching this debate on my computer on the train uh, coming back from an interview I did for Face the Nation in New York, uh, the conductor walked by and he said, that's the debate in which Bush lost. And then he said, broke my heart. He was being facetious. He was not a Bush man. But that's a sense in which this debate, just seeing it without the audio, a conductor on the train knows exactly what this moment is. As Clinton spoke, the cameras cut away to a nodding Marissa Hall Summers. Remember the 1976 debate between Carter and Ford, how the League of Women Voters wouldn't let the television networks show the crowd because the school marms at the League didn't want the pristine answers clouded by some sort of human reaction from the people who might be affected by those answers? Well, this was the exact opposite of that. What viewers were getting at home was a real-time assent to what Clinton was saying. So the nodding of Marissa Hall Summers was basically you know, the country agreeing or regular folk agreeing with what Clinton was saying. It was an extraordinary moment. The president had had a moment of confusion and mixed signals and the pathos of a confused guy trying hard to give an answer, but ultimately failing. And then swoops in the southern governor to play all the emotional notes. When Clinton said, I know people by their names, that was a key. He didn't just read about it in some flyer. He knew the names of people. And then he went further to say that His campaign was geared around those people, finding them, talking to them, hearing them. This was his entire enterprise was connecting into this question. It was about more than empathy, though. It was about he was going to do something better as president to get at those problems. So it was, I hear you and I'm coming to the rescue. Campaign moments don't turn the way we make them seem like they turn. Usually it's only in retrospect that we say a campaign turned at this crucial moment. So when Bill Clinton answered this question, Ms. Summers' question, it was felt in the moment that he did well, and it was a signature moment, but it has grown in massive proportion since then. Not unlike the Reagan, I paid for this microphone, Mr. Green moment. And this happens all the time. We'll certainly see it happen whenever we get around to the 1960 Nixon-Kennedy debate. But the reason this became such a a moment that lived on is, of course, it captured the entire dynamic of the debate. And it was an easy way for everybody to tell the story of the night and the story of the campaign. So if you were at a network or in a newspaper looking for a lead or, heaven forbid, a news magazine looking for some kind of fabulous way to talk about this debate, here was a moment that just cried out for it. An editor of mine at time used to talk about the tyranny of the false moment, which is that we need to tell a story that takes place over a long period of time. It has a lot of inputs and outputs, and it's kind of messy, but we got to start somewhere, and we need that somewhere to be full of meaning and portent. You might notice that we do this here at Whistle Stop. So we sometimes stuff a lot into that one moment, even though there wasn't the fireworks at the moment at the time. But still, this was a big moment in the time, and it grew to be an even bigger one. Here's one of the ways in which it grows uh, to be such a huge moment in the lore. Here's the way Bill Clinton writes about it. The debate was essentially over after our answer to the woman's question about the personal impact. Of course, the debate continued on for 45 more minutes. This exchange at a town hall debate has another element to it that uh, political scientists have studied. And it's sort of interesting. In a town hall debate, the political scientists tell us that heightens the feeling of candidate identification, which is to say that when you watch a candidate answer a human being and not just a member of the press, 
many of whom are not indeed human beings, they are more likely to feel that a candidate cares about them. So it significantly increases that feeling of care about you. And if that's what the larger campaign was being fought over, this question of does he care about me? Does he understand me? Will he enact programs to help me? If that's what the larger campaign is about, then having a town hall, which accentuates those feelings anyway, compounds exponentially the underlying push of the campaign. The moment became so important in retrospect that another Bush gaffe was kind of stapled onto it. Before Summers asked her question of Bush and all the candidates, George Bush stood up and looked at his watch in what was almost a theatrical rendition of that movement. He moved his arm with such force and thrust as he stood up that his suit jacket went like up near his elbow, exposing his sleeve as he looked at his watch. And then he hiked up his trousers which was another sort of strange thing for him to do at the time. And this is all while the question is being asked. At the time, some people might have noticed the wristwatch looking, and he did do it at several different times during the debate. But on TV, what you saw was the shot over Summers' shoulder right at Bush. He's in the center of the frame. So later, after the three candidates had given their answers to the question, this moment, which took place before the question, gets put into the narrative. In other words, he was irritated with having to be there and getting stuck in this question. And this looking at the watch was a sign of that irritation. Bill Clinton and his recollection of the exchange shifts the time placement. So Clinton writes, at one point during these exchanges, President Bush made a bad moment worse for himself by nervously looking at his watch. It made him seem even more out of touch. So that suggests that it's in the middle of the exchanges, even though it was before them. So the way in which this other idea of of Bush, who was just looking at his wristwatch to figure out how much of his set piece material he'd gotten out, how much more was there in the debate, it was a perfectly reasonable thing for a person to do. But in the retelling of the tale of this bad answer, it got added in as a part of more evidence that Bush was totally out of touch, didn't want to be there in the moment, and also didn't want to be there answering that kind of question, which was the kind of question you had to answer as a president. Now, in retrospect, though, it might have revealed something about Bush's discomfort, the debate. Uh, In an interview with uh, Jim Lehrer, Bush said, was I glad when the damn thing was over? Yeah. So clearly Bush wasn't totally thrilled to be at the debate. This is what Bill Clinton wrote about that second debate when it was over. I love the second debate. Whatever questions they had about me, real voters mostly wanted to know about things that affected their lives. And that turned out to be true in the polling. CBS News polled uh, about 1,100 voters. 53% of them said that Clinton had won, 25% Bush, 21% Perot. A USA Today poll uh, a few days later had Clinton at the lead of the pack, 47% for him, 32% for Bush, 15% for Perot. What's amazing about the I feel your pain instinct is that it lifts up the idea that presidents should be able to think on their feet and connect with voters. This moment of theater in this second debate. There are two sort of great rhetorical skills in communication and presidential communication. One is Reagan's actor's skill and the other is Bill Clinton's improvisational skill. So Reagan became and was considered the great communicator because he was a Hollywood actor and he was used to reading scripts, but also he had done those general electric theater and also radio commentaries. And he'd written a lot of the radio commentary scripts. So it wasn't just that he was reading mindless copy written by others, but he was creating an empathetic voice from the written word. 
This skill was basically how to read a prepared text and make them seem authentic. It was basically what George Bush, uh, George Burns, excuse me, famously said, sincerity, if you can fake it, then you've got it made. That was the Reagan skill. The Clinton skill, on the other hand, was that extemporaneous speaker who became present in that interview craze talk show age where candidates were going on Larry King and Phil Donahue. He wasn't reading from prepared scripts. He was just speaking from the heart. And that's what he did in the answers in that second town hall debate in 1992. Later, though, of course, as we came to know Bill Clinton as a president, that shilly-shallying in the moment, that talent for being able to give answers off the cuff, was seen by even more people as a symbol of his lack of honesty and trustworthiness. I mention all of this because there's a funny thing about communication in politics today. Barack Obama's opponents consistently criticize him for using a teleprompter. They say that it shows that he's scripted and doesn't know his mind. But if that were true... And Obama speaks extemporaneously all the time, so it's not really true. But if it were true that he was speaking just from a teleprompter, it would put him more in line with Reagan, a fan of the prepared speech, than Clinton, a fan of the extemporaneous remark, uh, who Republicans nevertheless usually think of as a liar. So that's just a way in which we can notice that we change our assessment of how presidential communication takes place. Uh, even though both instances, the Reagan or the Clinton model, are both uh, attempts to basically create a sense of authenticity, not necessarily show the authenticity that may be at the heart of the speaker. If you wanted to make a fancy theory, you could argue that Jennifer Flowers helped Bill Clinton win the presidency. How would you do that? And how much do you have to strain your back to make that backbend? Well, Jennifer Flowers happens right before the New Hampshire primary. Because it sets the press into a feeding frenzy, Bill Clinton has to find a way to go around the traditional media. How does he do that? He creates town halls, which do two things. They give him skill in going back and forth with audience members, but they also give him a constant narrative refrain that the town halls and the interactions between him and the voters are the central and key quality of the presidency. So he's given a framing device and he's also given a hell of a lot of batting practice. Then he goes down to Richmond in this key moment in the campaign, and the voters in that moment echo his framing device, killing and taking away George Bush's characterological attacks and saying, really, this campaign is all about the issues and empathy, not just issues in their abstract, but then because the symbolic parent question gets asked, that framing device becomes about empathy and this relationship between the voters and the candidates that's almost familial. So they echo Clinton's framing device, and then he gets a moment where he is able to display all of those talents he's been working on since the Jennifer Flowers business erupted in New Hampshire. Now, that may sound like a lot of mumbo-jumbo, but mumbo-jumbo is at the heart of our presidential campaigns. That's why you're listening. It's the subhead of the whistle-stop commemorative manual and troubleshooting guide, a compendium to mumbo-jumbo. So... Until our next visit and more mumbo-jumbo, I'm John Dickerson of Face the Nation. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear what you think of Whistle Stop. Send us an email at whistlestop at slate.com. And also leave us a review in the iTunes store. It helps us spread the word. Thanks to our sponsor this week, The Great Courses. They're back. Scientific Secrets for a Powerful Memory. How Conversation Works. Art of Public Speaking. Influence. Mastering Life's Most Powerful Skill. And here's a special limited time offer for you, the Whistle Stop listener. Order any of these four, 
business and presentation courses for just $9.95. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash whistlestop. That's thegreatcourses.com slash whistlestop. Our producer for today's program is Tony Field. Our executive producer is Andy Bowers. Whistle Stop is a part of the Panoply Network. Check out the entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our Whistle Stop Cracker Jack researcher is Brian Rosenwald, who always feels your pain and notes that George Bush spent much of his time in those final weeks campaigning in New Jersey, a state Republicans don't dare bother with anymore in presidential politics. For Whistle Stop, I'm John Dickerson. I'll be back in two weeks. Thanks for listening.